As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. You are listening to Preconceived, where we examine the preconceptions that shape how we view the world and the paradigms by which we live our lives. Hey everybody, I'm Zale Mednick and welcome back to another episode of Preconceived. People love to watch crime shows. People love to follow a high-profile murder case in the news. Perhaps society is so intrigued by crime because of the things it can reveal about the human condition. What leads someone to commit a crime such as murder? Do people who commit such crimes feel remorse? And how does the legal system respond to these crimes? How much weight is given to intent, premeditation, remorse, and prior criminal activity? What is it like to defend someone who has committed a crime? Brian Greenspan is one of the most prominent defense lawyers in Canada. He was president of the Criminal Lawyers Association in Ontario from 1989 to 1993 and was the founding chair of the Canadian Council of Criminal Defense Lawyers from 1992 to 1996. He was awarded the Douglas K. Laidlaw Medal for Excellence in Oral Advocacy in 2002 and received the G. Arthur Martin Medal for Contributions to Criminal Justice in Canada in 2010. He was the Bora Alaskan Distinguished Lecturer in 2018 and the Milvain Chair of Advocacy in 2020. In 2020, he received the Toronto Lawyers Association Award of Distinction. He has been recognized in the international who's who of business crime lawyers and the best lawyers in Canada since their inception, and is a band one leading individual in white-collar crime in Chambers, Canada. He was named one of the 25 most influential lawyers in Canada by Canadian Lawyer Magazine in 2010, 2013, and 2018. Brian, you are very, very qualified. (laughs) Well, actually, I'm humbled by the introduction at the same time. Uh, it's been 46 years in the practice of law, uh, and over that time frame, I've had opportunity at least to uh, be in court thousands of times and participated in, in appellate law across the country and in trials across the country. Well, I, I appreciate you taking all that experience and chatting with me today. I'm, I'm excited about it. Like I said at the beginning, it's a topic that really interests a lot of people, as you can just see based on in entertainment, people watching crime shows, right? No question about it. Although we uh, sometimes are misled 
by American justice and the nature of American justice. Uh, we are distinct, uh, although we have commonalities between the United States and Canada, there are great distinctions as well in terms of how we approach uh, both uh, trial advocacy and how we approach the issues of guilt or innocence. What do you think are the, or what are the biggest differences you see between the two? Well, they have a believably punitive system, a draconian system in terms of punishment and penalties. Uh, we have a much more, I believe, civilized uh, and European tone uh, to the way in which we uh, address crime and the realities of crime, the realities of rehabilitation, uh, and what it means to punish and uh, what it means to remediate uh, those that uh, uh, engage in, in some uh, criminal misconduct. Uh, the United States, and this probably will surprise many, uh, is the most over-incarcerated uh, community in the world. Uh, generally speaking, if we run uh, the gamut of punishment, uh, Japan is always on the low end, somewhere around 60 or 70 people incarcerated per 100,000 uh, in Japan. We then go to mid-Europe and see uh, 80, 90, 95 people per 100,000 incarcerated in Italy, Germany, and France. Uh, we get a little bit higher when we get uh, to the United Kingdom, about 130 uh, per 100,000. And we're in line with uh, Britain. Uh, we're somewhere usually between 115 and 135 persons per 100,000 incarcerated. You then move to South Africa, where one would have thought it would have been a high number, 300, 325 per 100,000. Russia, almost 600 per 100,000. The United States has repeatedly had in excess of 750 people per 100,000 incarcerated in their country. And Texas reaches uh, approximately 1,000 per 100,000. I've often said in legal gatherings of perhaps a crowd of 500 uh, that uh, in Texas, uh, at, least, uh, at least a couple of people in the audience, especially an audience of lawyers, would likely be in jail in Texas. Uh, and it's really quite incredible in terms of their approach. And then that, to top it off, I'm sorry to be so long in the response. No, no, this is, that's a staggering number. But they then have a system in the United States where they have a, both state criminal law and federal criminal law. We only have a Canada criminal code. We don't have province by province criminal codes. But under U.S. federal law, uh, they don't have essentially a parole system. You serve essentially 85% of the sentence. In Canada, we have eligibility for parole at one-third and statutory release at two-thirds, still under supervision in the community. Uh, and there is that middle third that's at the discretion uh, of the parole board. But particularly with respect to nonviolent first offenders, uh, the idea of not permitting some range of alternatives in terms of how they're to serve their punishment uh, is quite frankly uh, astounding. And all it does is produce more crime and produce more greater criminality uh, in the United States. Uh, and it uh, becomes a, a sort of recycling people and turning people who might otherwise be rehabilitated into career criminals. That discrepancy is massive. I was not expecting it to be that order of magnitude of difference. W what cultural aspects have led to the states being so much more 
interested in incarcerating people than Canada, for example. Well, I, I think that there is, uh, underlying in America, there is a, a sense of um, right and wrong, uh, and the wrong should be punished. And there's a real sense of punishment rather than a sense of, of balancing uh, the individual and the individual's role in the community and determining whether or not there is uh, some sense of uh, rehabilitation. There's also uh, a racial aspect in the United States that's overwhelming with uh, far greater numbers of uh, the black community and the Latino community incarcerated uh, than elsewhere. There's also this notion and a very conservative notion uh, in particularly the southern United States where Again, the gun-toting American uh, views uh, liberty uh, in a different way than we do. Uh, I think that our cultural mosaic has provided the opportunity for us to try to address social issues and address crime uh, in a more compassionate way, in a more understanding way, that people can stray from, from uh, uh, society's norms, uh, but uh, can learn from their mistakes and, uh, and end up being productive members of our community. The United States just doesn't, is blinded really uh, to that uh, and seeks the, quite frankly, the demonstrably untrue notion that greater punishment will deter crime. Uh, greater punishment doesn't deter uh, most crime. Uh, it doesn't deter homicide, that is certain. It doesn't deter uh, certainly crimes that don't require you to think about it uh, and engage in it. It may have some moderate deterrent effect on crimes uh, such as fraud, crimes such as, but then you're dealing, generally speaking, with, with white-collar crime, which is usually the nonviolent first offender crime. The likelihood of being caught is the greatest deterrent of all. Uh, but if you take uh, most crimes that are impulsive, most crimes that are without thought, uh, a great deal of them where people are either under the influence of alcohol or drugs uh, or have some emotional difficulty or mental health issue that leads them into crime. The length of the period of imprisonment is not going to impact on whether or not that person in those circumstances would engage in criminal misconduct. So it's really a difference in philosophy between Canada and the United States in addition to a lot of these cultural factors. I think so. I think that it's very, very clearly that. And uh, uh, they're, uh, the fact that they cling to the death penalty, they're the only Western democracy that has the death penalty. Uh, few, if any, uh, countries in the civilized world uh, continue to, uh, uh, to kill people uh, as a means of punishment. Uh, we abandoned it, uh, although not formally, uh, but we essentially abandoned it uh, in the early 60s and have not returned to it since. So it does seem, as you mentioned, like the idea of punishment for justice is a really big idea in the States. Whereas in Canada, what is the purpose of sentencing in the legal system? Is it thought to be to prevent further crimes for rehabilitation, a mixture of the two? I think that there are a number of social objectives. Uh, there are some people who are, you said in your introduction, there are some people who are bad. Uh, there are some people who are uh, so twisted and, and so um, uh, incapable of change uh, that they'd be qualified or, or psychiatrists would categorize them 
uh, as the psychopath, the sociopath, uh, and that they simply uh, will continue on a path of, of uh, misconduct and criminal behavior throughout their lives uh, and can't be reformed or rehabilitated. For those people, the idea of imprisonment is isolation, separation, segregation, making sure that they're not in the community uh, and uh, are free to engage in further either violence or, or harmful conduct toward other people. But that's a very, very small group of people. Uh, and we, we know about them, the serial killers, the people who engage uh, in uh, serial sexual assault, uh, the people that engage in violence toward a person on a repeated basis over the course of their lives. Uh, they're notorious, but there are very few of them, thankfully, in our community. So that's one end of what punishment may be about for a very select number of people. Uh, there is uh, a concept of punishment that most people in the community share, and that is people who do wrong should simply receive a penalty. It has nothing to do with social objectives. It's simply something that uh, uh, the victim and the victim's family uh, and those uh, who were the um, recipients of, of uh, the misconduct and, and suffered from the misconduct feel a sense of not quite biblical vengeance, but a sense that they that they want, uh, you know, they can't get the eye for the eye, uh, uh, but they can get some uh, perhaps resolution of their nightmare by uh, seeing that uh, the person, in, in fact, who harmed their family or harmed them uh, have some sense of, of punishment. So that's another feature of it. But generally speaking, we move toward a, a model where we try our best uh, to uh, move people through the system who are subject to change, uh, who are prepared to participate in programs. Every penitentiary has an anger management program. You know, I, I once cross-examined someone who uh, had taken the uh, anger management program while he was incarcerated on, on a robbery charge, uh, and then when he was released, uh, ended up being a contract killer. And when I was cross-examining him, I cross-examined him and said, and you engaged in an anger management course. He said, yes. I said, I guess that didn't work. <laughs> and he said, I said, quite to the contrary. When I killed Eddie Mello, who was a famous Canadian boxer, when I killed Eddie Mello, I wasn't angry at all. Right? <laughs> and so I said, that simply means that you're a cold-blooded, heartless murderer. He said, I guess you could characterize me that way, yes. So there are programs, and to those that can change, and to the people who learn, uh, there are programs in the penitentiary that are very helpful, and uh, helpful in trying to uh, bring that person back into the community uh, with uh, less of an edge, less of a grudge, uh, less of a negative attitude uh, toward the community. Uh, but again, these are all subject to the social conditions that the person finds himself in when they return to the community. So you you deal with a lot of people who, quite frankly, have committed pretty bad crimes, correct? Like you deal with people who've committed murder. Yes, no, I've certainly, and I've had many murder appeals and and many uh, murder trials over the course of my career. Some of whom didn't do it, by the way. <laughs> there, there are a lot, there are a lot of you have to remember that we have an adversarial system of justice. You know, simply because you're charged, 
uh, doesn't mean that he committed the crime. It means that uh, the police investigating the crime, uh, whether they were right, wrong, indifferent, whether they were tunnel visioned uh, or uh, were proficient and did a great job in their investigation, and there's certainly both ends of it, uh, they end up uh, alleging that someone, uh, that there are reasonable probable grounds to believe someone committed a crime. And it's passed on to a Crown attorney who then has to assess the case and has to prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt. What percentage of your cases, I'm sure you can't give an actual percentage, but are there a lot of cases you've had where somebody has been tried and they really, they really didn't do it? They were innocent? Well, from the outset, there was a, an organization called the Association in Defense of the Wrongly Convicted. And I was on the original board, and now uh, it's become Innocence Canada. And I'm on the foundation board now uh, with uh, several retired judges and business people in the community uh, who are committed to trying to, to uh, assess uh, people who claim to have been wrongly convicted. Generally speaking, uh, the cases that we review are cases of homicide where people are serving life sentences. And I don't remember the last count, but we've uh, had at least uh, I think 18 to 20 people uh, exonerated, uh, people who spent uh, decades incarcerated on murder convictions uh, who were found to have not been guilty. Some of them are, are well known in, in terms of the community and were well publicized, uh, others not so much. So those are on the murder convictions uh, that we find DNA evidence that can now be uncovered and, and can exonerate people uh, or people recanting uh, their claims that uh, that they observe people, uh, that they were intimidated by the police or intimidated by uh, their social group into making false claims. Uh, and that then uh, ends up exonerating uh, people in the future. But those are on the most serious of crimes. You can only imagine uh, how many people uh, in the Ontario Court of Justice at Old City Hall uh, who are facing minor offenses where they say, I didn't do it, or I wasn't that person, uh, or uh, here are the circumstances, it was never my intention to do anything wrong. Uh, how many of those people are convicted and burdened with a, a criminal record uh, for a considerable period of, of their lives and that impacts on their ability to be employed, impacts on their ability to uh, go about uh, their lives in a productive way? So uh, I, I can't put a number on it, uh, but are there serious examples of wrongful convictions in our community? Of course there are. No system is perfect. Uh, no system uh, convicts all the guilty, and no system acquits all the innocent. And on some level, the number doesn't even really matter, because as long as it's not zero, it's important that you don't want anybody serving a sentence for a murder crime or any crime that they didn't commit. That's right. That's right. I imagine one of the most popular questions you get is, how do you grapple with defending people in cases where you do have a sense that they are guilty? I know the standard answer would be that everyone is entitled to have a defense, but do you find it challenging sometimes to defend somebody where you know that they have done something wrong and should be punished? Well, knowing that they've done something wrong is a, there is a, a wide range of no, of knowledge. So first of all, again, and I have a very romantic view of the role that the defense plays, uh, and I hope it's not maudlin, but uh, and, and is meaningful. Uh, I said I mentioned the adversarial process. Uh, you know, Europe has an inquisitorial process where an investigating magistrate investigates the crime, 
uh, and at the end of the day decides uh, whether or not the matter will be brought to trial. And by then, it's almost a foregone conclusion that there's a presumption of guilt because it's been investigated by an investigating magistrate. Here, the police lay the charge, pass it to the Crown. The Crown gets the information from the police and proceeds to attempt to establish a case beyond a reasonable doubt. In many cases, the person's guilty. And in the overwhelming cases of overwhelming guilt, the accused pleads guilty, perhaps not to the offense that, or the original offense that was charged, perhaps a lesser included offense. Perhaps they were charged with five uh, acts and they, they plead guilty to two or three of them. Uh, and they attempt to resolve what might be uh, a range of punishment susceptible to them. So in the overwhelming number of cases of guilt, in fact, there is no trial. Uh, there may be an issue and dispute over what the punishment ought to be, but there's very, very frequently uh, a negotiated resolution on guilty pleas. I, I don't know the number anymore. At one time, the number of guilty pleas were well into the mid-85, 87% of all charges led to some plea of guilty. So that takes a lot of those people out of the situation. Then you have th those where you're going to trial. Uh, and there, most of the time, uh, from a defense perspective, uh, the client says, I didn't do it. Uh, that wasn't me. Or if I did, here's what happened. Uh, that person attacked me, uh, and I was only trying to defend myself when the gun went off. You then might say, and how did the gun go off three times, rather than simply once in self-defense? Uh, that might be a problem in terms of establishing the self-defense defense, but they have a defense uh, and they have a story to tell or they have a position to take uh, that affords an, a, a defense uh, because otherwise uh, they're going to be convicted of first or second degree murder uh, and the punishment for first or second degree murder is life imprisonment. The only issue with respect to murder first and second degree is how much time you spend without eligibility for parole. That's only eligibility for parole because the sentence always remains a life sentence for a murder charge. So that is another area. Uh, then you come to the rare cases. And the rare case is this. Your client has said, I did it. Here's what I did. Here's why I did it. I know that's not a defense and I shouldn't have done it perhaps, but it made me feel good to do that crime and I'm uh, going to stick by my not guilty plea. Yeah, that's, that's the obvious, very tricky situation. In, in those rare cases where your client has essentially uh, confessed uh, at least legal guilt, if not moral guilt, in terms of what happens, in those cases, the greatest challenge is this. You can't call the client to the stand and permit the client to mislead the court or lie in any fashion. So the question simply becomes, and this is a proper approach, the client isn't called to testify, the client doesn't give the client's version of events because the truthful version of events would lead to a conviction. What you simply are there to do is make the system work. And the system works when the prosecution can establish guilt based on the evidence that has been produced in the investigation 
where the prosecution can prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. That should be the standard every case. If we don't hold the prosecution to that high standard of proof, then many cases will uh, end up in wrongful convictions. So the role of the defense in those cases uh, is in this combat, in this adversarial process where you knock heads, uh, and what you, what you do is you knock heads by, um, by having both sides present their case in an effective way as possible. Let's go one step further on that. A person says, I saw Mr. Smith, the accused, uh, pull a gun out of his pocket and shoot Mr. Jones. Uh, Mr. Smith, the accused, says, well, that may well have happened, but um, uh, I, want to, uh, I want to plead not guilty. So then the dilemma becomes even more complex because when the person who allegedly witnessed the shooting gets on the stand, how do you cross-examine that person when you know that that person is in fact telling the truth? So you're permitted to do certain things in a limited way. You certainly can't suggest they're lying. And that, that would be wrong. Uh, and that's unethical, improper, it's unprofessional. But you can certainly say, and what was the lighting like? And for what period of time did you have that opportunity to observe? Was it in a shadow? From what perspective did the person come uh, at the other person? You can certainly cross-examine as to the circumstances surrounding the observation as you could in any other case. Uh, the fact that they've got it right uh, is something for the jury and the trier of fact to decide. That line of questioning is reflective of the kind of investigative work you're doing behind the scenes, I guess, yes. in terms of what kind of story are we trying to create? You're not trying to fabricate a new story. Somebody else did it. This is that person. Obviously, that's unethical. You're trying to say the situations in which you come up with your evidence perhaps are more muddied than are being presented here. That's right. That's right. Is it challenging in those cases, though, when you are, when you do know somebody's done it? I know that's, like you said, I, not the most common situation. I must say, in 46 years, I've never had to come to the really hard choices uh, as to walking that line uh, and making sure the tightrope doesn't uh, permit me to fall over into the area of impropriety. Uh, I've never had uh, an ethical issue in terms of the questions I have to ask and was permitted to ask. Yeah, I think that's a really big preconception that a lot of people have. It's that in most of these criminal law cases, the defending lawyer knows I'm defending somebody who is wrong and I know they've told me in secret I'm guilty, but you better tell them that I'm innocent and prove that I did not do it. And that is really, in most that, cases, not the situation that's true. No, that, that, that really is, uh, that, that's a, the theoretical preconception uh, that really doesn't bear out in a practical way. I also like what you said there about the system needs to work and you need to trust the prosecution. In order for this whole system to work, you can't just say, well, we're going to drop the defense here. You need to say, yeah, we're going to have our defense. We're, there are limits on what you can say in the defense, uh, but we're going to have our defense. But we're also going to, in this case, rely more on the fact that the prosecution in our current system should be able to prove their case if it is 
the verdict that is true. Every time out. And, and it, it should be relentless, it's the relentless pursuit of, of the fundamental principles of justice that you have uh, a prosecution that is burdened with this high standard. You know, in civil cases, it's on the balance of probabilities. In criminal cases, it's proof beyond a reasonable doubt. So what's the process like of first interacting with a client? Do you meet them in a room and kind of just say up front, listen, I'm, I'm your lawyer, I'm here to defend you, but you need to put all your cards on the table and be honest with me? No, not, no, that's <laughs> not the <laughs> That's why I'm not a lawyer, right? Oh, I, 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 I tend to be a little bit more circumspect. I'm not, I'm, I'm not uh, uh, this isn't the confessional, uh, and uh, there isn't a screen between us. Um, no, certainly uh, I tried to tell them about solicitor client, attorney client privilege, uh, that uh, that these are confidential discussions and confidential communication. But I tend not to say, what's your story? Uh, I tend to uh, to have a question and answer. I'd like to know background of the person. I want to know where this uh, allegation fits in. Uh, I want to know what good things they've done uh, and as well what bad things may have happened to them previously. Um, I want to know on the night of the incident, because I'm going to know the incident, because there's a charge. Uh, where were they you know, earlier in the day? What did they do earlier in the day? Uh, what brought them to that place? Uh, and we'll go through a chronology of events, and their story will come out uh, by virtue of the questions and the answers to the question. I think that that way you, you get uh, some context uh, for what may have occurred. And as you're doing that, you're also thinking about what justifications or excuses there, there might be uh, for the, uh, the conduct uh, if the person, in fact, was the per- person who engaged in it. Do you find that people often need a lot of prying or by the time they get to you, and you mentioned before, usually they will be honest with you about a guilty charge and often will plead guilty. Do you find that they often need a lot of prying or do you find that people just kind of open up? Or does it really vary? I think most people are pretty candid with their lawyers. I think, uh, you know, have I been deceived in the past? Sure. Uh, but I think it's a handful. It's uh, certainly the, uh, forget the majority, it's a, a distinct minority of clients who haven't been candid. Uh, usually there, there, there may be some generalized uh, areas where they are absolutely transparent. And then when you get close to the, the uh, problem, uh, they may close up a little bit, and quite frankly, they're entitled to. We're, we're not uh, in a confessional. Uh, we're there to present one side of the issue. The prosecution uh, presents the other side of the issue, and uh, a neutral arbiter, whether it's a judge or a jury, uh, they're the decision makers. They're the ones that decide whether the standard of proof has been uh, satisfied. So I want to shift a bit to some of the the lessons you've learned from from your time dealing with people who are in these situations. In general, in your encounters with criminals who who committed the act, this is a very general term and I don't even like it, but do you find that people are bad people doing bad things or do you find that there are people who have made some bad decisions and have remorse afterwards? I I, I think the overwhelming number of people that I've dealt with who in fact uh, committed crimes uh, were very remorseful for their involvement in crime, either personal circumstances, uh, emotional uh, upset, 
you know, spur of the moment, bad decisions and poor judgment, uh, and sometimes simply lack of, uh, of emotional control uh, over what they may have done uh, lead to uh, criminal activity. Now, there are people who are uh, moved by the opportunity to make quick money. The serious uh, drug trafficker doesn't usually justify their drug trafficking by saying that uh, uh, drug, drug trafficking should be legal uh, and that we should all be able to enjoy whatever narcotics we want to enjoy and whatever uh, uh, unlawful substances are unlawful should not be unlawful. They're not usually you know, social crusaders. Uh, they're people who take the opportunity to make money uh, based upon the fact that something is illegal uh, and uh, they, uh, want, they're intentionally uh, breaking the rules uh, for commercial gain. So that's an area where it may well be that sentences may impact upon uh, the attractiveness of being a drug trafficker. So some people would argue that that is an area where, where deterrence may work to some extent uh, because then the person has to know that they're taking significant risk of a significant sentence uh, if they engage in that commercial activity. So that's one example of, of you know, people who, who intentionally engage in crime. But quite frankly, the overwhelming uh, number of homicides uh, are situational. Uh, they're, they're not targeted. There are some, obviously, and there are gangland hits, and there are people who uh, are contract killers. Uh, but if you take a look at the murder rate, and you take a look at how many fall in that category, that's the distinct minority. Uh, they're the ones that get perhaps the, the greatest amount of attention uh, in the press. Uh, but the, uh, there is, within our community and within our society, for instance, a, a core number or core percentage of all homicides, they're truly situational. Uh, and uh, a lot of them domestic, uh, where uh, although there may be an abusive spouse and there may be somebody who resorted to violence in the past, the brutality of that uh, relationship was seldom, if ever, meant to result in the death of the other person, even though, you know, as socially reprehensible as the, as the conduct short of death might have been, uh, the death itself would have been uh, and likely would not have been the plan uh, or part of the intention of the person. Uh, there are very few uh, intentional homicides, uh, even spouses. Most of those are, are situational. So when you refer to situational, maybe this isn't the best word, but impulse. Yep. Are some of these crimes born out of impulsivity? I think a lot of, certainly a lot of fights, a lot of assault situations, a lot of assault police, for instance, is a classic impulsive situation. Nobody really intends as they're being arrested you know, to, uh, you know, to lean back and... Uh, slug a police officer. Uh, most people, if they thought about it, would know what the consequences of doing that would be. So it's usually uh, either uh, in an impulsive situation, person is being dragged out of, of a bar, they've had far too much to drink, uh, they're irrational, uh, they've been misbehaving, uh, and all of a sudden they're handcuffed and, and dragged out. Uh, and the response can sometimes be reactive and impulsive. Uh, and as soon as the situation calms down, 
you'd be uh, uh, amazed by how many people look at the at the police who are then arresting them, saying, "Oh my God, I'm terribly sorry. What did I do?" That happens very as frequently uh, as not. Uh, so there are situations that are are purely impulsive. I can recall a couple conversations where I've had with friends, none of us legally inclined. Sometimes I tend to, and I'm not trying to sound like I'm a good guy here because that's not the case. I mean, I think I'm a good guy, but that's irrelevant to the point here. Oh, you're uh, good. <laughs> thanks, Brian. But there, there are times where I'll hear of a case where somebody does get drunk, for example, and does something really impulsive and stupid and maybe even kills somebody. And I'm imagining that the intent was not to at all land where they did. And there's some people who look at that and say, well, you know what? It doesn't really matter. I don't care. The result's the same. They killed somebody. They should be treated the same way as anybody else, regardless of that intent. Or I might feel a little bit more sympathetic to those people because I, I think to myself, oh, geez, they just, made, they just made such a bad decision. And working with a lot of these people, where do you land on that? Well, the, again, there are different levels of intent, different levels of fault even when it comes uh, to the tragic death of a person. Uh, you can have first-degree murder as a planned and deliberate murder or a murder during the course of certain specified other offenses that lead to that homicide. Second-degree murder is still has a, a level of intent, but it doesn't have as specific a intent requiring planned planning and deliberation, but it involves being engaged in the wrongful act and, and have the, the intent to cause bodily harm uh, that you know is likely to cause death. Then there's a third level, and that's manslaughter. Uh, and that's very often uh, the refuge for the person who had no intention to kill, uh, but uh, engaged in wrongful conduct that tragically and unexpectedly uh, and in totally unanticipated way led to the death. Uh, there are fist fights that are just fist fights. No knives, no guns. You have a fist fight. All of a sudden, uh, you land a blow uh, to the person's neck, and all of a sudden, uh, the the uh, artery leading to the brain snaps, and all of a sudden, you have a dead person on your hands who's bled out in a matter of seconds, uh, where all it was was a fist fight. And normally, the fist fight would have led to, at most, an assault charge, perhaps a charge of assault bodily harm. Uh, and rather than uh, facing a life sentence, he'd be facing either no period of incarceration at all or a sharp, short sentence of imprisonment uh, with respect to to that assault that may have caused bruising in the black eye or, or some soreness and perhaps even cut to the skin or some something that was of a minor nature. So certainly that, that split artery that leads to death uh, is totally unintended, and that's where manslaughter comes. And manslaughter, how severe? Manslaughter has a full range of sentence. It, 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 you can go from zero, literally, with no imprisonment, to life. So it has a full range of punishments. Uh, very frequently, that type of, uh, of uh, uh, assault would be probably in the three to five year neighborhood in terms of punishments. And again, subject to parole and subject to statutory remission. But an unintended death in those circumstances, particularly if the other person was engaged in the fight. In other words, we're not talking about an unfair fight, we're talking about a fair fight. Uh, and during the course of that fair fight, something 
an unexpected act. So that again, that that is, uh, I think, an appropriate example of a range of of uh, fault, a range of liability uh, that uh, has the same results. You can't simply reason backwards from consequences and then say every consequence deserves the same punishment. The consequence may aggravate the punishment, and the consequence may uh, impact upon what is going to be the appropriate punishment. Uh, but the consequence isn't what uh, what was intended. The consequence is a fact, uh, and a fact that's unavoidable. Yeah, I think drunk driving is an example of that, where there's a ton of people who drunk drive, and I don't support that, and I don't think I need to justify that. I obviously don't support drunk driving, but there are many, many people who drunk drive. You hear about drunk driving arrests. And sometimes I think to myself when I hear about somebody who killed somebody from drunk driving, uh, who knows, maybe they are a repeat offender and they've been drunk driving their whole life and it was bound to happen. Or maybe that's not the case and they just got really, really unlucky that night that they drunk drove. And I'm thinking they're not really that much different from the person who drunk drove but was lucky enough that they didn't kill somebody. That's right. You know, there are many drinking and driving offenses uh, where the reason that the person is apprehended uh, is not because they're weaving down the road, but they, they crash into a gate or a fence or a pole. Uh, the police are called. Nobody was injured. The car may be a, uh, a little bit damaged or could even have major damage. They pull the person out. They ask for a roadside, fails the roadside, take them in for a breathalyzer test. person blows 180 which is more than double the legal limit, uh, and they're charged with impaired driving and over 80, uh, and they'll probably not go to jail. Rather than a pole, it could have been a pedestrian. And if it was a pedestrian in those circumstances, the person will go to jail for five years. Uh, that, that is where consequences play a significant role uh, in uh, punishment. But the act that was committed is precisely the same act. The person who hits a pole or the person who hits a pedestrian. Yeah. And, and the line that I remember that resonated with me in one of those, it wasn't an argument, it was a discussion, was somebody said, yeah, but how many poles do you think that guy hit before that guy hit a person? Well, you know something? That's you totally, never know, though. Totally speculative. Perhaps many and perhaps none. Uh, and perhaps that was the first time that that person made the bad decision to drive after drinking. And maybe it was the 50th time that that person made the bad decision of drinking uh, or driving after drinking. We don't know those facts, and those facts are elusive. The last thing I wanted to touch on was the fairness of the legal system. And you've compared it to the states, and it does sound like there is certainly, I'm glad I'm Canadian and not living under the American uh, judicial system. Do you feel like in Canada, the people who commit the worst crimes truly are the ones who in the end get the worst punishments? Well, I think that that's... Well, the, the worst punishments or the available punishments are always higher than people who commit lesser offenses. The, the reason I brought up that question there of do the people who commit the worst crimes really get the worst punishments, it's because when I did a podcast episode about a year ago uh, with a criminal defense attorney in, in the States who deals a lot with capital punishment, and we were talking about that, and he, he said to me, the system is rigged in the States based on a lot of cultural things, a lot of which are related to race, and that in the States, 
it is not that if you commit the worst crime, you get the worst punishment. It's kind of like a lottery. And it sounds like in Canada, for the most part, we are, first of all, we don't have capital punishment. And second of all, it sounds like maybe there are less prejudices and cultural factors that are negatively influencing that. I, I agree with that. Although we, we, we shouldn't be, uh, I'm proud of our system, but it's not flawless. We still have a huge issue with respect to the over-incarceration of our Indigenous population. We still have a huge issue in terms of, of certain socioeconomic issues where we begin to have over-incarceration and disparate incarceration of, again, socioeconomically deprived members of our community uh, and uh, Indigenous members of our community. We still have a, a, a road to go uh, to try to uh, effectively balance off those prejudices and, and those disparities. Yeah, I think that's a really, really important point because often we will talk about racial issues in the States and it's it's as if there's nothing going on in Canada, whereas the issues you've highlighted are very real and often under underreported in the media. Last question for you. If you, were, if you were king of the world, which I'll, I'll try and help you achieve with all the power I have from hosting this right. podcast, right. Uh, if, you had, if you had the full authority to make some changes in the legal system, what do you think is the one thing that would be your top priority to change? Top priority to change in the legal system? Not sure I have one. Uh, I have a number. But again, I think that procedurally, we actually... Uh, achieve on a day in day, day out basis, we achieve re a reasonable sense of fairness. Uh, I still think that the drive to incarcerate is wrong minded. And I think that what I'd like to achieve is trying to educate people into understanding the objectives of punishment, uh, the sense of uh, the deprivation of liberty, uh, how, uh, quite frankly, the idea that six months behind bars uh, is a kiss, uh, and unless it's six years behind bars, uh, it's not a meaningful punishment. The impact upon uh, the person, the individual freedom of the person, and the future of the person uh, is adversely affected, not only for those six months or those six years, but generally speaking, for the rest of their lives. Uh, and the social impact of incarceration uh, makes people pariahs in their community. And they certainly, we no longer have the burning the mark of Cain into one's forehead. Uh, but within their uh, social setting, uh, unless they are born into uh, and only survive in a, in a criminal culture, uh, they will bear the, uh, the mark of Cain for many, many years to come. They will have to prove themselves within the community uh, before they become accepted within the community. I think that we should have uh, a sense and an educational process that um, somehow removes uh, the stigma of criminal conduct uh, at an earlier stage. Brian, thank you so much for spending this time to me. I feel very honored that you're taking the time to chat with me on this podcast. You're articulate and uh, extremely knowledgeable, and uh, I could go on, but thank you so much. Where can where can people find you? Do you have any, are you on social media? Do you post well, stuff there where you want people to know that you uh, exist virtually? Well, no. Uh, in fact, we're in the midst of, of uh, revising our, 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 our new website. Will be a, we have an old website that is a little bit outdated, but we have 
uh, Greenspan Humphrey Weinstein is our law firm, and, and we have uh, our eighth lawyer joining us, which in criminal law uh, is a large firm. Uh, there are uh, most criminal lawyers practice in association with each other. Uh, there aren't that many uh, criminal law groups uh, that are uh, in multiples, but uh, we are in the midst of revising our, our website and uh, it'll be online probably uh, by June. All right. Well, I would say if anybody needs legal help, that they can find you, but hopefully they don't need this type of legal help, correct? I hope. <laughs> thank you very much, Brian. And thank you very much, everybody, for listening to another episode of Preconceived. Please go to our website, www.preconceivedpodcast.com, where you can sign up for our newsletter, which gives updates on what's coming out and some blogs as well. Have a great day, everyone. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Preconceived. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you use and be sure to rate and review us. We'll see you next time. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.